Why don't you turn to Psalm 139 with me this morning? Psalm 139. I want you to think for a moment. What do you think of when we read these words? For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained, I'm sorry, ordained for me, when as of yet there was not one of them. What do you think of when I read those words to you? Does anything specific come to mind? I think many probably when they, at least within the Christian community, when they hear those words, think immediately of abortion. And it's because it's oftentimes used to prove that life begins at conception. It's a lot like Psalm 23, where whenever we hear the words of Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the, you know, the rest, and immediately we think of funeral, right? Well, when we studied through Psalm 23, we realized that wasn't David's intent. He didn't write it as a funeral hymn. And it's the same thing with Psalm 139. When we see these words, we oftentimes think of abortion, and that's a, a bit of a bit of a disappointment in the sense that it's some, in some respects been co-opted by a particular thinking. And yet that's really not David's intent. Now that's a good use of that, clearly. I think it's a great verse to use when arguing that life begins at conception and that God is the author of life and that we should protect life. But the intent was something very different by David. And oftentimes we find that with the scriptures where we can apply them in a variety of ways. But we're going to look at the intent of this this morning. Now there's quite a bit of debate as to how to, how to categorize this hymn. In other words, as we've gone through the hymns, we try to give them a category. So it helps us understand them. As we look at this, the one thing we notice immediately is that it's written much like a prayer, which would make it a psalm of lament. That would be the category that it would fit into. However... There's also elements of it that resemble both wisdom and praise hymns. So you might say, well, it fits into that category. But there's another type of hymn that's called an imprecatory psalm. I don't expect you to remember that, but an imprecatory psalm. And it's where one calls down judgment upon the enemies of God. And so what we have with this psalm is no agreement as to how to categorize it. It could be considered a lament, it could be considered a wisdom psalm, it could be considered a praise psalm, it could be an imprecatory psalm. And so there's a bunch of different elements that we see mixed up in this particular psalm today. As you read through it, you cannot help but see that one of Davis's purposes is to plead with the Lord for vindication. In other words, he's crying out for the Lord because he's been accused of something, some suspicion or some false claim by his enemies and he's crying out to God for vindication from those claims now the reason I think this psalm is important for us and we've talked about this on and off every once in a while about how even here in the United States now we're beginning to face more opposition and we find claims uh, made on a regular basis against God's people you know, we think about the whole LGBT thing, and we think about abortion and all those other things, and um, the hatred for the stances that we take is growing. There's no question about that, and so we are accused. In fact, it's getting more difficult today if we simply say that we are 
opposed to something or if we favor something. For instance, if we say we favor traditional marriage, what does that say to the community around us? That's right. Automatically, it's, you hate gay people. Well, no, I love gay people. Um, I just support traditional marriage. No, you are a bigot. You hate. And so it's it's getting to the point now where it's almost assured and guaranteed that as we stand up for the principles and the things that we believe as God's people, it's not seen as loving or compassionate or gracious or kind. It's seen as quite the opposite. And so I believe that we are facing a time now where that opposition will continue to grow and we may find ourselves in a place like David where around every corner we'll be accused of things that are not true of God's people. And it's at times like that that our only hope will be to cry out to God for vindication because he promises us that he'll vindicate us. And so as we look at this psalm today, there's a number of things I want to point out. Let's look at the structure first off. There are four parts to this psalm, and we're going to use some alliteration today. We're going to use the word or the letter O for some alliteration. Basically, four times that David seeks vindication from the Lord. He first seeks vindication through the Lord's omniscience. Okay, that's verses 1 through 6. He then seeks vindication through the Lord's omnipresence, which is verses 7 through 12. He then seeks vindication through the Lord's omnipotence, which is verses 13 through 18. And then lastly, he seeks vindication through his own opposition to the Lord's enemies. That's the rest of the psalm. And so basically what we find are that David is going to reflect on three traits of God and one of his own traits. And he believes that those things will vindicate him from the accusations of God's enemies. Again, the Lord's omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and David's own opposition to the Lord's enemies. There's a number of poetic elements to this as well. Um, I've mentioned this word before. It's the word merism. It's where you take two opposite words and you use them together to imply the whole. And what I mean by that is, look at verse 2. If you look at verse 2, David says, You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. What do you suppose David is referring to there? It's another way of saying something. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up means all the time. You know me all the time, Lord. But instead of saying that, he uses these opposites, these extremes. Standing up, laying down. Look at verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. He says, you scrutinize my path, that's my walking, and my lying down. It's the opposite of walking, is it not? And again, there he means everything that I do. So instead of simply saying, everything I do, he says when I walk or when I lie down. Look at verse 5. He says, you have enclosed me behind and before. In other words, in front of me and behind me. That's another way of saying all around me. So you can see the poetic elements here with that. The last one I'll mention is, look at verse 8. He says in verse 8, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, behold, you are there. The opposites. What's the opposite of heaven? Shale. And so he says, if I go to heaven, you're there. If I go down into Shale, and remember, Shale was not just hell. It was the place that you went after death. Some went to Abraham's bosom, which simply means to wait for their resurrection. It's where the good people went, if you want to say it that way. God's righteous people. But then there was the other component, which was hell. But David here is using it simply in the sense of the place you go after death. He says, you're there. And so it's another way of saying, you're everywhere. You're way up there in heaven. You're way down here in the depths of the earth. Again, that's referred to as merism. 
It's a way of using two words that are opposite to describe something much bigger. That's where we get through marriage. That's where we get through marriage. <laughs> Contrast is another tool that he uses here. Look at uh, verses 11 and 12. He says, If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Notice the contrast there to paint this great picture. Dark, light, day, night. He also uses hyperbole. Look at verse 18. He says, if I should count them, he's referring to God's ways. Let's start at verse 17, actually. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So we've got this hyperbole, this exaggeration, if you will, that your thoughts are so vast to me, they're like the sand of the sea. Anybody count the sand of the sea? be impossible, would it not? That's his whole point. So he uses this hyperbole. He uses repetition. Look at verses 21 through 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. How many times is the word hate used there? Four times. It's this idea of repetition, which is often used in Hebrew poetry as well, to drive home a point. I hate, I hate, I hate, I hate. He's trying to drive something home with the repetition there. The last thing I think I'll touch on in terms of some of the poetry here is what I want to refer to as bookending. Bookending is where you take very similar phrases and you start that way and you end that way. It becomes bookends like on a bookshelf. You look at verse 1, he starts off with, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You understand my thought from afar. Jump down to verse 23. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. Notice he uses the same exact words there. He starts off by saying, You have searched me. You have known me. You understand my thought. And then at the end he says, Now search me. Know me. Understand my thought. And so there's this book ending where he starts the psalm on one note and he ends it on a very similar sounding note. Again, it serves as bookends. It sort of brings the psalm back where he started. Let's go ahead and look at the teaching of this now. First thing we mentioned was that David seeks vindication through the Lord's omniscience. Omniscience refers to Lord, the Lord knowing everything. It's one of the big three O's, if you call it that. Look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and know me. What's interesting about that phrase is that the, the tenses, he changes up the tenses in the Hebrew to drive home a point. He says, you have searched me, which is in a tense called the perfect tense. And what that means is that God had done it in the past, continues to do it today. It's a, the idea of thoroughness. You, you've searched me completely, thoroughly, fully. But then he says, and you know me, and he changes the tense there into this imperfect tense, which is the idea of ongoing, which is that because you have searched me thoroughly and fully, you know me continually. You always know me. There's never a time where you don't know me. Past, present, future. The reason he says this is because the Lord knew his motives. Look at verse 2. He says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought, which is another way of saying my aim or my purpose from afar. What he's saying there is that, Lord, you know my motives. You know what I think, what's in my heart what I aim to do, what my purpose is. He goes on and he says that he knows everything that he did. Look at verse 3. He says, You scrutinize my paths and my lying down and 
you are immediate, or, or, sorry, I'm sorry, intimately. You are intimately acquainted with my ways, which David means here is that you know everything that I do. So you not only know my motives, but you actually see how those are played out. You know what I do. Verse 4, he says that he knew what David was going to say even before he said it. The Lord knew David so well that he even knew what was going to come out of his mouth. Verse 4, he says, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. So what we find here in these first few verses, these first four verses, is that David is looking to God and saying, God, you, you know me. That's where he's searching for his vindication from the Lord. He says in verse 5 that the Lord's intimate knowledge of him provided protection. Look at what it says, verse 5. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. That's a statement of protection, which is kind of interesting at this point. David's point here appears to be that the Lord knew him so well that he actually set protections around him to restrain him at times from sin. That's something that's alluded to in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Let's go ahead and turn there real briefly with me. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. You're all familiar with this verse. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God, who is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the means or the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. The promise we have from the Lord is that He puts protections around us. He provides us ways of escape, which means He won't allow us to be tempted in such a way that our only option is sin. He will give us a way of escape. There's this element of protection, and that's kind of what David is alluding to here. You guys, you all know that we have a dog named Max. We keep Max in a cage at night and when we leave the house, and there's a reason for that. Because Max has not learned yet where his limits are. We came home one time shortly, I think it had been almost a year after we had had him, came home, and he had chewed a hole in the wall. And that's inside the cage. I had placed the cage up against the wall, and he had gotten through the little gate, and he chewed this giant hole, drywall. So, immediately, I had to put blocks in. So now, if you go to our house, you'll see that there are blocks, little two-by-fours, that separate the cage from the wall. Because it wasn't enough just for me to say, Max, don't do that. So I set up some protections there. We have a gate that goes up and separates the family room from the kitchen. When it's muddy and rainy outside, we put that gate up because Max is too stupid to realize I can't take my muddy paws into the family room. So to prevent him from doing that, we put the gate up. I had to replace the hinges on the door where our, under our cabinet where the garbage goes because we had discovered that Max was going in with his nose and opening the door and getting in the trash. So I had to get new hinges for that. Why? To prevent him from doing that. That's kind of the idea here is that the Lord, as David is looking at the Lord, he's like, you know me so well that you put these little protections in place. Your omniscience, your ability to know me so thoroughly is a a form of protection for me. Look at verse 6. David says that the... Because the Lord knows him so well, it overwhelmed him. Look at verse 6. He says, Such knowledge, this knowledge of how well you know me, is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain it. 
you ever think about that for a moment? You know, it's one thing for us intellectually to say, yeah, I realize that God knows all things and so he knows me. But when you really get down and you think about it, it's pretty overwhelming how well the Lord knows us. In fact, he knows us better than we could ever know ourselves. There are sometimes, even with our own kids, where I think I know them better than they know themselves. And they may make a statement. I had one the other day with the oldest daughter. And she made some comments. I said, no, that's not really true, honey, because I know you, and I know this about you. Oh, but, but, but. But I know you better than you know yourself, because I've seen it. She thought she knew herself, but not as well as her daddy does. Sometimes there's that self-deception. Sometimes there's just not knowing ourselves, or we like to think better of ourselves than we really are, or... Our intentions color how we think about ourselves. I would never do that. Really? Sometimes dad knows better. And so David here, this appeal for vindication, you might paraphrase it this way. This is basically what David is saying. Lord, you know I am innocent of the accusations against me because you know me. Because you really know me. And so David is able to call upon the Lord's the Lord to vindicate him because he's basically saying, Lord, you, you know I'm not guilty of these things. You've looked at me. You understand me. You know me. You know my motives. You know my thoughts. You know everything before it comes out of my mouth. You know me so well that you know that I'm not guilty of these things. So what's the practical application for us in this? Why was David able to be so confident in the Lord? He wasn't a perfect man, was he? He obviously sinned. But he was a man after the Lord's own heart. He wasn't perfect, but he loved the Lord and he sought to please him through his obedience. I wonder sometimes if we could have the same confidence with the Lord as David did. You know, I I oftentimes, when I look at the way we behave as Christians sometimes, um, we're not always innocent in the way that we present ourselves or the things that we do. You know, I I think about... um, Sometimes the way that we handle the abortion debate, there are times where we don't show a lot of compassion. We do show hatred towards those. Now, I'm not saying that's always the case. I think most Christians are by far compassionate. But we don't always show that. And so when we're accused of being hate mongers or not caring, sometimes you have to be honest and say, you know, sometimes... Some Christians, that's the way they behave and that's what they communicate. Now, with with that said, I think we could be completely loving and gracious and perfect and we'd still have accusations thrown at us, but it doesn't help when we don't behave like Christ or with the whole LGBT movement or when it comes to cases of divorce or other things and not showing proper compassion or grace. You know, it's interesting because when we look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, in fact, why don't you turn there with me, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, this great passage starting at verse 12. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's talking there not so much about not working to gain your salvation, but once you are saved, work it out. Work on it. Grow. Continue to mature. You might call it the process of sanctification. For He says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that 
You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, now look at this, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Paul's point there is he's basically saying, make your behavior excellent among those outside. I believe the reason David was able to look at the Lord and say, I'm innocent, you know me, is because David was a man after God's own heart. He sought to please the Lord. He wasn't perfect. And when he wasn't perfect and he got called out on it, we know how he responded with confession, remorse. And so in order for us to be able to do this, we have to live our lives with a commitment to obedience. It's hard for us to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm innocent of this. If deep down the Lord knows, yeah, you're really not. You're really not. And so the first thing David does is he says, Lord, you know I'm innocent because you know me so well. We also know that David, and even some of the Psalms, and he does it here, cries out to the Lord to continue examining him. So he was always open to that as well. We'll touch on that a little bit. The next thing David does is he now turns to God's omnipresence, which is the idea that God is everywhere. That's verses 7 through 12. I'm going to read those. He seeks vindication now through the Lord's omnipresence. Look at verses 7 through 12. He says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea... Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the light is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Now you may wonder what God's omnipresence here has to do with vindication or David's plea. First off, the fact that God is everywhere and sees everything means that nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is hidden from him. David, I'm sorry, um, the Lord said something to Jeremiah that I think is valuable here. It comes from chapter 23 of Jeremiah. It says, Can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I don't see him? declares the Lord. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? declares the Lord. Basically what Jeremiah or David was, I'm sorry, what God was saying to Jeremiah was, Nobody can hide from me. I see everything. Much like a dad as he looks at his daughters and says, I have my eye on you, right? Well, that's kind of the point. And so David here reflects on that. They convey a sense of not wanting or attempting to hide anything from the Lord because he recognizes that the Lord sees anything. That's really at the heart of this. David is not just saying, oh Lord, you see everything. But he's saying, because you see everything, I desire to obey. I, I don't desire to hide anything from you. In fact, he actually rejoices in the fact that no no matter where he finds himself, the Lord is there to lead him. So what you see is that David is reflecting on the Lord's omnipresence, but not just, I'm afraid that you see everything, Lord, but rather because you see everything, I rely on you to guide me. And because of that, David can say, you can vindicate me, Lord, because you know that I've allowed you to lead me. I recognize the fact that you see everything, so I don't want to hide anything from you. I don't want to do anything in your presence that would offend you. 
And so in essence, what he's saying is, you know me, you know I'm innocent of their accusations because no matter where I've been, you've been there to lead me and I've followed you because I recognize that you see everything. And so I want to live in obedience to that. The practical application for us, I think, is I wonder how our, applic- or how our actions or behaviors and the words might change if we were more keenly aware of the fact that God sees everything. I can tell you about my own self here, that sometimes I don't forget the theology that God sees everything, but I certainly don't always live like I really believe that. Meaning, there are times where I still, like most of us, sin knowing that the Lord sees it, and it's not until after the fact that I kind of go... I I know the Lord sees these things. I know that the Lord watches that. Why do I still do that? Why do I still do that? So we can know it, but we don't always live like we know it. When the psalmist says that the fool says in his heart there is no God, it's funny about that. If you look at the, the verse, it's not really a theological statement. It's not, he's not an atheist. The point of that psalm is that he lives like there is no God. We see that oftentimes in the world around us, don't we? That, oh, yeah, there's a God, but they certainly don't live like there is. What it means is that you're not really absolutely convinced that the Lord sees all, knows all, judges all. It's almost like you can get away with this, or that God doesn't care. And so what David is doing here by by reflecting on the Lord's omniscience is he's basically saying, Lord, I know you see everything, and because of that, my desire is to live in a way that recognizes the fact that you see everything. And that, in and of itself, provides me a certain amount of vindication. Think about that for a moment. If the Lord absolutely knows that your heart is to always please him, but he knows that you still stumble and you fall, but you recognize, Lord, you know this, then it leads you to do what? It leads to confession, leads to repentance, in fact, First John tells us that if we say we don't have any sin, it says you're a liar. You're deceiving yourself. Or I'm sorry, it says you're deceiving yourself and you make God out to be a liar. And then he says, but if you confess your sins, what is that? It's a recognition that, Lord, you see everything and I can't hide anything from you. And so he says, so come back to me, confess those sins, and I'll forgive them and make you clean from all unrighteousness. And so what David does here is he reflects on the Lord's omniscience and basically says, because of that, you know, because that's where my heart is, I recognize that, that he can receive vindication from the Lord. And you notice with something like that, it's not his perfection. He doesn't say, Lord, you see everything, you know I'm absolutely perfect. Because he talks about the Lord leading him here through that as well. So it's not a plea that because you see everything, I'm absolutely innocent. You know it, Lord. It's more, I live my life in a way that recognizes that what I do and how I behave is seen by you. He moves on to the third thing here, which is the omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of the Lord. And again, you might wonder, how in the world does that provide vindication for David? How can he call on the Lord's power... And why does that vindicate him from the accusations of his enemies? This is verses 13 through 15. Look at just the first couple of them there. 
David reflects on the Lord's awesome power in creating him. It says in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. So how might the Lord's power in creating David serve to vindicate him against false claims of his enemies. I think there's a couple of clues in the three verses that actually follow this. Look at verse 16. It says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. That literally is a word for embryo there, which is, again, why I think it's a good passage to use in the debate about life. But he says, You've seen my unformed substance. You've seen my embryo. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were none of them. So the first thing David understands about God's omnipotence is that God has a divine purpose in David, and he saw this in his creation. He says, God created me for a purpose. Look at what he says in verse 17. David rejoiced and was overwhelmed by such a thought. He says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O Lord! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Here David says that the Lord's aims or purposes, his thoughts, that's the same word used up in verse 2, are precious to David. He says that they are vast and outnumber even the sand of the shore. I believe the reason David calls here on the Lord's omnipotence as part of his plea for vindication is because David recognizes that the Lord had created him for a very specific purpose. And we know that as you look at David's life, David recognized his role in God's plan. God had promised to make him king, which he did. David was continually in communication and communion with the Lord, knowing that he was there to fulfill God's purposes. And so the way that this, I think, plays out is David is looking at that and saying, Lord, I'm being accused by my enemies because of the very purpose to which you've called me. That's why I'm hated. And so that in and of itself then becomes something we can call on God for in terms of vindication. Think about this. When we stand up for those things that we believe are right, when we stand up and we say, no, this is, this is wrong, and we get accused of being hate mongers, or we get accused of being bigots, or we get accused of being unloving or incompassionate or uncompassionate, not having empathy. Those things are all related to our purpose, is it not? We are called to be lights. We are called to be God's representatives. We are called to speak the truth. Jesus said, when they hate you, it's because they hated me first. But by the way, you will be hated because of that. And so the accusations that are made against us come specifically because of the purpose to which God has called us. And so when David reaches out to God and says, Lord, vindicate me, because these accusations are made against me because of the very reason and purpose you created me for. I think it's kind of an interesting thought. Because what it's basically doing is it's saying, Lord... The stuff that I face, the accusations that are made against me, is because of why you've created me. And because of that, there are certain protections found in that. As the Lord looks down, he is certainly going to look at his people and say, yes, you're being hated because of me. 
And because of that, there's a certain sense of innocence that can be found in that, is there not? There really is. We're not always, I mean, like I said, if we're not careful about our behavior, we can be hated for the <laughs> what we deserve because of the way we behave sometimes. But when we are being hated or accusations leveled against us, purely because we are standing up for what God has created us for, we can turn to God and say, Lord, what they're saying is not right. And I'm not being accused because of who I am in and of myself, but rather because of who I am in you. And so David looks at that and he, and he calls on God for vindication because of that. And so when he basically reflecting on God's power here, he's, he's using it to reflect on his creation and the purpose for which he was created for and saying, Lord, I'm hated because of that. And then he calls out to God to vindicate him. Another way to say this, David's appeal for vindication, might be basically this. Lord, you know I am innocent because you created me for a purpose and I have valued and embraced that purpose. That's why these accusations are being made against me. We face that as Christians all the time. When a Christian baker, two people come into his shop who have been served by him for years, and they now say, we'd like you to make us a cake to celebrate our gay wedding. And he says, I'm sorry, I I can't do that because it violates my relationship with the Lord. However, you can go down the street where somebody else will make you a cake, and all of a sudden there's a firestorm because of that, the baker can say, Lord, I'm simply standing up for your principles here. Simply standing up for, you created me. This way, you've created me to love you, to honor you, to serve you, and now I'm being accused of all kinds of things that are not true about me. Lord, vindicate me. Vindicate me. And that's just one example, maybe the extreme, if you will, but does that not happen more frequently now to God's people? It does. So from a practical application standpoint, I think we first have to realize that we have been created for a purpose. We know that's pretty clear. And because of that purpose, because of God's power in doing that, we're going to face opposition, we're going to face accusations by people, things that will be untrue. So as we live out that purpose, that's what we will ultimately face. And we can turn to the Lord and say, vindicate us, Lord, and ultimately he will, will he not? We know that in the end, God will honor those who honor him and will punish those who hate him. We will receive vindication in the Lord for the opposition, the persecution, the false accusations made against us. Because God has assigned us to this purpose. The last thing that we see here is that David seeks vindication through his opposition to the Lord's enemies. And so while the first three reasons that David is able to call on the Lord for vindication from the false accusations all relate to God and his character, this last one is actually one of David's characters, or character traits. Verses 19 through 24. He begins with a call for God to destroy the wicked and for such men to depart from him because of their opposition to God. Look at verses 19 and 20. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O Lord. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they seek or speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. So David basically calls for God to slay the wicked and basically calls on them to leave him alone. 
that serves as a warning, basically. Um, it's funny, because even in this, we find a little bit of compassion on David's part. Um, tells him to depart from him. It's a way of saying, knock it off. David reminds the Lord of his hatred for such men in verses 21 through 22. Look at this. He says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with, a mo- with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. There is literally no way to soften that, folks. David hates those kind of people. He even emphasizes, it's the utmost hatred. It's the strongest kind of hatred. This isn't a little bit of hatred. It's not like I just don't like them. No, I literally hate them about as much as I could possibly hate such people. Now you might say, wait a minute, Jesus says to love our enemies. We're not supposed to hate anyone. The problem with that is Jesus was referring, places like Matthew chapter 5 and others, was talking about personal vengeance. Somebody wrongs you, your enemy, you're not to seek vengeance against them. Instead, you're to love them. Whether it's inside the church or outside the church. Jesus did just that. Did he not? They put him on a cross. What does he say when he's up there? Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He died on the cross for those people that drove the nails through his hands, through his feet. He certainly loved his enemies, but he didn't seek his own personal vengeance. He said to Pilate, you know what? I could smote you. I could call down 10,000 angels in a heartbeat and vaporize you if I really wanted to. But he was there to serve the Lord's purpose, didn't seek personal vengeance on his own. And so those passages really refer to that. What David is getting at here is this moral disgust or repugnance towards men who hate the Lord and actively, actively, um, hate him. And so it's this idea of a moral disgust or repugnance. What basic is what, what David is basically saying here is that, man, I, I, I'm disgusted when I look at the world and I see them hate you. I don't like their behavior. I don't like what they say. I don't like what they do. It's repugnant to me. And why is that important here? When you genuinely hate something, Don't you generally try to avoid it? One of the problems that we often see in the church is we become too much like the world because we don't hate the world. Isn't that true? When you look at the the Christian church and you go, wow, that's really no different than the world outside it, what that tells you is we don't hate the world enough. Now granted, we're supposed to love those in the world, right? But we really ought to hate and be disgusted by some of what the world does. And yet, oftentimes, we simply do it and we adopt it. We dress like it, we behave like it, we talk like it. We tolerate way too much sometimes. We're all guilty of it. I think about even the way that we do our church services sometimes. In so many churches where this idea that we'll just become like them, and so we do things in services, I'm not specifically talking about Renew here, but we do see this, where sometimes we look at Christian leadership and churches and and other things and we kind of go, Wow, really? That's just not, there's something not right about that. You know? And it's because we don't, we're not disgusted by it. And David says, Lord, I'm disgusted by those things. And so, why is that important here? The way David ends this psalm kind of hinges on that. 
And he basically says, Lord, vindicate me because you know how much I loathe those types of things. In essence, he's basically saying, why would I do those things, Lord? You can look at me and you can see that because I hate those things, I've got no desire to do them. I've got no desire to be like that. And so he ends the same way that he started the psalm. Look at verses 23 and 24. In fact, let me read it real briefly here. Search me. O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Notice he started the psalm with this. You have searched me. He says, and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. So he starts the psalm by saying, Lord, I'm going to appeal to you for vindication because you, you absolutely know me. You know who I am. You've searched me. You continually know me. Nothing gets by you. But then he ends the psalm by saying, Continue to search me. Continue to look at me. Continually know my heart. Know what's there. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. You notice he repeats those three words. Search, know, and thoughts. These are the bookends that I talked about. He says, See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I love this because David's appeal at this point is basically this. Lord, you know I'm innocent because I despise wickedness. But you know what, Lord? If you see any wickedness in me, call me out on it. Call me out on it, and then lead me in the right way. That's really the way we ought to be living our lives. Lord, I hate wickedness, but man, if you see anything in me, call me out on it. And then lead me in the right way. You know, we refer to that in the Christian speak, if you will, as living by the Spirit, don't we? Jesus said he'd give us a helper. He knows we can't conquer sin on our own. He knows we just, we've got the flesh still, and so he gives us the Holy Spirit. And so David, in essence here, is calling out to the Lord, saying, Lord, I hate those things. Help me to not do them. Help me to walk in your way. And again, that serves as an element of vindication. What we see in this psalm as we look through it is David isn't relying on his own perfectness. He's not even relying on his own innocence, is he? He never calls, calls out to the Lord, basically, and says, Lord, you know what? I've been good all the time. I'm completely innocent here. Instead, he calls on God and his characters. Now, well, God knows him. God leads him. God cares for him. But even at the end of the psalm, we see here that by calling on the Lord here to continue to search him, and if he finds something in David he doesn't like, to then lead him and direct him, indicates where David's heart is at. I think the practical application for us in this is this. I wonder what the Lord sees when he examines our heart. What does he see when he looks at you? Would you be able to say what David did? Lord, you know I hate wickedness. I really do. Or do we find ourselves being a little bit too comfortable and cozy with the things that really offend God, but the world does them and we do them too then? Does the Lord find somebody in us that's become so desensitized or tolerant of things around us that we no longer even think about those things? You know, the scriptures call on us to examine ourselves. And sometimes that's necessary where we have to really look at ourselves and say, man, you know what? Am I too much like the world? Is my behavior too much like the unsaved? Am I really living the way that I do? I don't know that we oftentimes ask ourselves that. I can be real frank again. I wish I were better at this sometimes. I still do things that shame me, or I think, wow, I can't believe I did that, or I can't believe I said that, you know? I think I've shared the example before, and it's an extreme example, where 
when I was working at the car dealership. Here I am with a bunch of unsaved people, you know, and I'm doing the best I can to be a witness. And they're all, in fact, their nickname for me was Father Mike, you know, and I know that there are probably other instances, but one that stands out tremendously for me was when I got so angry at my boss, who was brutal and difficult to work with. He was always riding me. Um, and I literally took, we used to staple the keys to the work order. It was a cardboard, so that way you always kept the keys with the work order, you know, so when the customers came back, you'd take them off. And I literally took that, and I just launched it. I swore at him, dropped the F-bomb on him, hit him right in the forehead with those keys. Stormed out of there. I don't know that in the four years in seminary and the two years afterwards that I ever felt so ashamed in my life. I literally just, I'm thinking, Lord, I completely destroyed almost two years of ministry here with these guys. And so the only thing I knew to do was to go back up and sit down with, with Kim, his name was, and beg for his forgiveness. I laid it all out there on the line and told him, I started with, man, I shamed Christ. Absolutely shamed Christ. Why did I behave that way? Well, to be real frank, I became so accustomed to the guys doing that all around me all day long, it was just acceptable. You know? So David basically says, Lord, you know that I hate wickedness. And you ought to know that because I hate wickedness, that I don't want to be like that myself. And so when these around him are accusing him of things, It isn't that David is perfectly innocent. But he can honestly say, I do hate those things. So for us, that's kind of where it starts as well. Just hating those things that displease the Lord. So what do we do with this overall in general? I think one thing that stands out to me in this psalm is the humility to which David approaches the Lord. Really, if you notice, 75% of what David relies upon for vindication from his enemies is all about God. His omniscience, his omnipotence, what God sees, what he knows, how he leads David. His confidence in the Lord and his belief that the Lord will vindicate him against false claims isn't based on David's pride or arrogance or self-righteousness, but on his faithful relationship with the Lord, is it not? And that's true of us as well. When we are facing further opposition or we are facing uh, more challenging times going forward, um, what our kids are going to face is going to be much more difficult than what we've faced. I believe that we live in a time where opposition to the Lord is going to continue to grow. It is going to get stronger. It's going to become more hateful. It is get, it's going to be more difficult, I believe. You have even us worshiping in a place like this we may get to a time where we will not be able to find a facility, at least not a government-owned and run facility, because there are more and more places now that are building into their rental agreements and their charters that you have to not just not offend them, but you must uphold certain things. You know, we find schools now that won't let kids meet as Christians. You've got colleges that write into their charters that... um, you know what, it's, it's not enough that you don't teach during your meetings about certain things, but we want to see in writing that you uphold and support certain things that are offensive to God. 
it'll become much more difficult. And where do we find our vindication? Well, first off, we know that the Lord will vindicate us. But as we look through what David does here, it's his faithful relationship to the Lord that allows him then to call out and say, hey, you know me, you've examined me, you've seen me, you know these things that they're saying are not true about me. But also, Father, you've created me for a purpose. And it's because of that purpose that I face these things. And so all of these things are found in this psalm here. So where does that vindication come from? It comes from the Lord. But not just because we can say, I'm innocent, but rather because of that relationship that we have with the Lord and how well he knows us, how well he guides us and protects us. 